How Are You Feeling is recorded and produced on the stolen land of the Gadigal and Bidjigal peoples. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. How are you Hello and welcome to How Are You Feeling, a show where we talk about politics, news and pop culture through the lens of our emotions. My name is Danny Stewart and I think that people should really just wear masks. Yeah, that's 100% what I believe. It's 100% what everyone should believe. But yeah, I'm Lungol Wakina, and I am a Virgo stan, and I am enjoying Virgo season. Oh my gosh, that means so much to me, <laughs> a Virgo. <laughs> yeah, um, so Danny, what's making you anxious? Well, the Australian Bureau of Statistics has just confirmed that we are in fact in a recession. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> So good. The first since 1990, with the economy shrinking by 6.3% in the last 12 months. I'm no economist, but that sounds bad. (laughs) To be honest, I tend to find economics kind of dry. Same. So I don't usually engage with it that much. But I've started to pay attention for the first time since year nine commerce, because this recession is no ordinary recession. And what's making it unique is what's making me incredibly anxious. So this recession has been referred to as a pink collar recession or a she session. Oh no. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yes, I know where you're going with this. It disproportionately is affecting women, trans and non-binary folks, where previous recessions have tended to affect blue collar workers more than anyone else jobs in construction manufacturing industries which employ men lockdown and social distancing however has had the greatest impact on sectors traditionally populated by women workers but despite women dominated sectors being hardest hit the government's solutions are um noticeably based around male-dominated sectors. The rhetoric is all tradies and gas-led. It's all about building things, infrastructure projects. They love to say, we've got to build our way up and out of this crisis, right? But this ignores the real nature of the recession and the impact that it's having on working women and the fact that what we really need to be building right now is social infrastructure. But yeah, the government's priorities are elsewhere. Do you remember um, the infamous home building program? Basically a scheme to provide grants to those who spend 150k on their home renovation. Oh my god, this isn't the first time I'm hearing of it, but that's fucked. Yeah, it was... Not a great success. Basically, no one took it up because very few people would have fallen into the parameters that you needed to to get the grant. So it's just really embarrassing, yet the government thought it was a great idea. Contrast that with 
Care and Social Services, which is the biggest employer of women. And not only have we not seen a stimulus, but childcare workers were kicked off JobKeeper early. In fact, overall, women have been less likely to be able to access JobKeeper despite the hardest hit industries being those dominated by women. So there's a design flaw in JobKeeper, intentional or not, which has discriminated against women. And what's making me real anxious is that some feminist economists are saying the end results of this pink collar recession could set women back a generation. Because many mothers or women with care responsibilities have pulled out of the workforce altogether and they might not return. The reality is with family budgets getting tighter, the cost of childcare is so astronomical that when factored in, many families just find that it's too expensive. So they make the decision for one parent to stay at home to be the carer. And in heteronormative families, this is most often going to be the woman. It's going to be the mom, you know? Yeah. So free childcare would give so many more women the choice to continue working as much as they would like. And everything I've read into this, it points to Nordic countries where childcare is free or heavily subsidized. And all of those countries have three things. They have a strong economy, they have the highest rates of women in the workforce, and they lead the world in gender equality. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah, I can see why that's making you anxious, because it is just now making me anxious. And also, providing free childcare would help everyone, but most of all, poorer families. Absolutely. Free childcare helps children from socially disadvantaged households by giving them access to cognitive and emotional development opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. So it's hugely important in terms of providing welfare for children. And it also helps our economy because more people in the workforce means a greater contribution to our GDP, which is only a good thing. But what really gets me is that the government did make childcare free. Do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, they had a policy which made childcare free. And then they ended it. But not only did they end it, they booted childcare workers off of JobKeeper early. Why? <laughs> Why would they do that? Well, the structure of the policy kind of points to the fact that their concern was to keep these childcare businesses running. And they had no concern for the staff or for the women needing to access that childcare. And it's very classic male-dominated policy thinking. Because when these policy makers don't have to rely on these social services themselves, they don't see the value in them. You might be thinking, well, that's bad. Like women have to take a few years out of their career to look after their kids. They can just come back, you know, and it's all good. But it's not. Yeah. It isn't easy for people, and specifically women, who leave the workforce for a period of time and then enter it again to pick up where they left off. 
yeah, like a lot of times their career prospects are essentially ended and they're forced to start from the very beginning when they do re-enter the workforce despite having years or even decades worth of experience. Yep, because ageism is real as well. So re-entering the workforce in your late 30s, in your 40s, in your 50s, it's a lot harder than being in your mid-20s. Yeah, absolutely. That time that they've taken off to raise their kids or they're pulling out of the workforce altogether has a huge impact on their retirement prospects. And the superannuation statistics show us this. So according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics data from 2017 to 18, the median superannuation balance for those aged 55 to 64 was split on gender lines at $119,000 for women and $183,000 for men. And this difference is before the pandemic as well. So before a whole lot of women working in retail, in hospitality, in tourism, all lost their jobs. And you might be saying, yeah, but things are different now. Like there's more equality. But the women in these, uh, in this age bracket are the children of second wave feminism. These are the women who, like my mom, were told you can have it all, you know? They're the career women and there's still this vast gap. We were already seeing the impact of the cultural and social factors that result in women having less economic stability before the pandemic, with older women representing the largest growing group of homelessness in the country. And if policymakers made the same investments in social infrastructure as they do in building, I don't know, mines and stuff, (laughs) then... (laughs) This could really be addressed. And also, investing in jobs in the care economy have great benefit in not also coming with a huge carbon footprint. Because, yeah, we do need to build ourselves out of this recession with growth, but we need sustainable growth. And digging stuff up out of the ground and shipping it overseas and burning fossil fuels, that's only going to exacerbate the huge issue facing us beyond the pandemic, which is, of course, the impact of climate change. So I'm extremely anxious thinking about the present, but also the future, if this kind of male-dominated policy approach continues. You know, I shudder to think of what this country's future could look like. I think, how could it possibly get any worse but if there (laughs) if there isn't investment in social infrastructure and an effort to provide relief for the women dominated sectors that have been so hard hit by the pandemic then things are definitely going to get a lot worse Uh, this is so frustrating I'm so glad you brought this up because I woke up yesterday and saw recession was tw- trending on Twitter and I was like, oh, I don't want to see that. I don't <laughs> I don't understand economics. 
<laughs> what I do is I call my brother and ask him to explain it to me. So even though I'm three years older than him, he is studying economics at university. So I'm just like, hey, I don't know what's going on. Can you maybe break it down for me? Hmm. My brother is also studying economics but I tend to not turn to him to ask about stuff. (laughs) Anyway, we need more representation in policy and in economics. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. We cannot just let these white dudes decide how things are going to run because they have different priorities to many people. Yeah. Having lived the experience that they have. We want to have that diversity there so that different things are prioritized, like social services. Yeah, it's just very distressing. And it's kind of unsurprising, yet still heartbreaking, that the government just still continues to prioritize the wrong things, (laughs) you know? Yeah, but anyway... Longo, what's making you anxious? Okay, so um, in the past week, two weeks, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding a Netflix film called Mignon. Well, cuties in English. Um, but it's a French film made by um, a Senegalese woman that essentially tries to tackle the over-sexualization of young girls. So, like, these are girls that are, you know, pre-teens, not quite teenagers, and this film did incredibly well. Um, The filmmaker, whose name is French, so I might butcher it, but it's Maimouna Decoré. Um, She did incredibly well. She had a short film that performed really well in film festivals, and this film, Mignon, did really well in Sundance, and because of that, Netflix bought the global distribution rights to the film outside of France. So, essentially what had happened was a couple of weeks ago, Netflix dropped um, teasers for this film, And, you know, because they're translating it to appeal to an English audience that is called Cuties, but the way they were promoting the film was really inappropriate and super irresponsible. So despite being a film that critiques the over-sexualization of young girls, Netflix literally perpetuated the over-sexualization of young girls. By um, promoting the film under a poster they designed that showed scantily clad young girls. Like 11, 12 year olds. Yeah. Uh. Like they were wearing like flesh colored tube tops and it is just really uncomfortable. And they were in, you know, they were all kind of posing on a stage and it was very uncomfortable to see 
And, you know, it is super irresponsible because Netflix is a global streaming service. So people all over the world had their first impressions of this film defined by this hypersexual representation of the girls it's about. Which is just totally at odds with what the film actually is. Yeah, and it's just... So distressing. Like, I I was very angry about this, but I was also super anxious because the director was faced with so much harassment online and she was forced to delete her social media accounts because she was getting death threats because they were essentially accusing her of promoting pedophilia and producing child pornography and this was before the film had even come out so netflix had been promoting this film saying oh this drops in september get excited but they'd completely redesigned the poster the original one looked so completely different than what Netflix had designed. Um, It showed all the girls kind of standing in a line and they were all shot from like the shoulder up and they were looking directly at the camera. And this one was kind of like, not that. (laughs) And, Mm. you know, it's just, they'd recut the trailer as well. Yeah, I watched the trailer and it was a lot. Watching that trailer, I probably, like my immediate thought was not, oh, this is a critical take, a critical look on how young girls in their tween age years, that weird in between being a child and a teenage girl time, are exposed to this hypersexualization. That was not my take at all. I was... I'm not sure what I thought the film was about, even, from watching the trailer, to be honest. Yeah, I was just really upset by the whole thing. So um, I didn't watch the trailer, because I'd actually found out about all this on Twitter. Um, And I was seeing all of these takes on how problematic it was to attack the director. And I was like, oh, what's this about? And then I started, you know, going through the tweets that they were quote retweeting and just like horrific stuff being said about this director. And because this director is a black woman, a lot of the vitriol she was getting was heavily racist, heavily misogynistic, like just disgusting amounts of misogynoir just thrown at her. And it's so devastating because this was her feature film debut, you know? And it's such an important topic as well. Yeah. And one that isn't really explored, but as someone who was, you know, a few years ago, like an 11-year-old girl, it is such a weird time of your life and a time where you do you feel it. You feel that you are starting to be sexualized and you feel that loss of innocence. All of a sudden, men stare at you on the train. Yeah. And 
and it's a really uncomfortable time and yeah I would love to see more representations of that in tv and film and seeing young girls dealing with that because it's not something something that's even talked about yeah absolutely it's I feel like it's really left out of the conversation how young sexual objectification starts because I saw a thread on Twitter that was just like, reply to this tweet with how old you were when you were first sexually harassed. And I didn't see anything above 13, you know? I saw yeah. ages as young as nine and maybe even eight. And it's just so heartbreaking because a lot of the replies were yeah I was super sexualized when I was a preteen girl when I was a teenager but when I became an adult woman a lot of that harassment stopped yeah I would say that that is my experience as well I definitely faced a lot more harassment when I was younger Which is messed up. Yeah. Like being catcalled, walking down the street, the staring. Oh my God, the staring. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah, I would say they kind of don't occur as much. Wow, I never thought about this before. This is so messed up. (laughs) Yeah. um, And I read a really interesting article when I was 17 that's, you know, stuck to me to this day, obviously, because I'm talking about it five years later, about pedophile culture. And I was reading it, and I was just like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Um, You know, when I read the title, and it was um, positing that rape culture is very much alive and well, but it's intrinsically tied to pedophile culture. And when I read that, I was like, oh, that's a really hot take. But at the end of the article, I was just like, oh, dear God. (laughs) Like, this is so legitimately terrifying, you know? And it was essentially saying that the obsession with youth intersecting with misogyny just targets young women and young girls so strongly and it's just infiltrated so many of our beauty standards you know it's like the whole expectation for women to be hairless um and it manifests in a lot of um just sexualization of youth specifically underage youth so it's things like pornography there's a lot of you know like barely legal or like you know schoolgirls sleeping with their teachers and like all of this and even if we want to talk about it in a non-pornographic context that kind of stuff is always romanticized in mainstream media like in Pretty Little Liars one of the characters essentially gets with her English teacher when she's 16 you know and 
I honestly didn't realize this until my friend had pointed it out to me, but there's an obsession with schoolgirl aesthetics in K-pop. And as soon as she pointed it out, I was like, oh, my God, you know, because I'm like a recent fan of K-pop, just started listening to it. And I really enjoy watching live performances. I think they're so much better than, you know, American live performances. There's a lot of production behind it, which I appreciate. And normally I'm just like choreography. Yes. Visuals. Yes. Costumes. Yes. But after my friend had pointed it out, I was just like, oh, they look like they're wearing school uniforms. And oh, this other group is also wearing school uniforms. Oh, wow, this is a trend, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the whole school uniform fantasy thing is just so uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's just also really difficult to talk about because obviously sexual assault and rape is considered incredibly taboo to talk about but pedophilia is even more taboo and it makes people super uncomfortable they don't even want to engage in those conversations which I think is really irresponsible because it just lets those behaviors continue to happen because we're too scared to engage with it and critically assess well why is this happening why do we as a society allow young girls to be sexualized you know and like another example i personally love bagging on tiktok you know i used to be a fan of it but now it's just super cringe so i avoid it but i really dislike how a lot of criticism that young female TikTokers get are just like, oh, you're over-sexualizing yourself, blah, 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 you're supposed to be a girl. I mean, why is it that they're being assumed to be sexual in the first place, you know? Maybe they are just being a girl. Maybe they are just, you know like experiencing girlhood but you're projecting overly sexual um interpretations onto them like i remember one girl was facing so much backlash because she was wearing a bikini at a beach (laughs) i don't know if you know this but you wear bikinis at beaches I don't understand why someone just enjoying the beach is just so hypersexualized. So yeah, this entire thing was just stressing me out. This is the thing you can't you can't win. And I remember being that age as well. A lot of the girls around me who were my friends internalizing those kinds of messages and then slut shaming other girls who yeah. are peers being like oh like that girl has so much cleavage she has her tits out like oh my god she's like so gross like why is she doing that and you really 
you can't win as a young girl because then the other like the flip side of the coin is that you're called frigid you can't win I'm so glad I'm not a 13 year old girl anymore (laughs) yeah and it's so devastating because misogyny is already like super tough you know not that I've experienced it but having to deal with that at such a formative age so acutely because of how targeted it is to your age and your stages of development is just dear god that must have been so rough but yeah switching gears a little bit danny what's been making you angry well what's making me angry right now um, it's a law to deprive immigration detainees of their phones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this proposed bill would amend the Migration Act to allow mobile phones and other internet devices to be prohibited. And it would also grant staff in immigration centers new powers to strip search detainees without a warrant and to use detector dogs. Oh my god. Really scary. The bill is set to be debated in Parliament this week. Right now, at the time we're recording this, there's no outcome yet. But I still felt it was important to speak about because this is just the latest plot in what has been successive Australian governments spewing rhetoric, implying that asylum seekers are criminal and are somehow less than human, Uh, I guess making it easier for them to justify the horrific way they treat these people. So yeah. Yeah, that's... I'm angry. (laughs) Yeah, as you should be, as we all should be. It's just so, so disgusting. You know, access to the internet has now been declared a human right by, you know, the United Nations, which makes sense because so many crucial services are available online. Yeah, 100%. And what this law would do is would actually breach the United Nations minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners, the Mandela rules, which stress the need for people in detention to be able to communicate with family and friends and also stay connected to their community and have legal representation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, really frustrating because... I personally feel like this is motivated by a very targeted desire to stop refugees and asylum seekers for, from advocating for themselves publicly, um, by exposing their treatment publicly, by saying, hey, we're having our human rights abused, you know. Yep. So, um, Serco, who runs the onshore centres in Australia, argues that the bill will, quote, protect officers from being intimidated by detainees who publish footage of them on social media. 
Uh, but <laughs> mobile phones are often the only way for detainees to capture assault and mistreatment by guards and detention staff, which is extremely common. The Saturday paper has reported that according to the department's own statistics, 4,115 assaults were recorded in immigration detention centres from 2015 to 2020. Holy, oh my God, that's... More than 4,000, and only 180 of those were reported to police. Oh my God. The way this country treats refugees and asylum seekers is genuinely so disgusting. I don't understand this insistence on continuing to try to paint these people as criminals like what the acting immigration minister alan tudge that's his name (laughs) tudge has said about the bill is that it's aimed um at the quote large proportion of people held in detention who have criminal histories and are still conducting criminal activities via their phones but this is just not true because yes some detainees are convicted of crimes and are now awaiting deportation but the majority of people in immigration detention are not criminals they are people who have overstayed their visas or are refugees and asylum seekers waiting for their applications to be processed. Some are people who were transferred for medical reasons from PNG and Nauru. And what's really scary about this proposed bill is that the wording doesn't protect the majority of detainees who aren't criminals. There's nothing stopping them from being strip searched from losing their phones if a guard suspects that they might be carrying out illegal activities oh my god so there's just there's no checks and balances in place there's nothing to protect these people who are not criminals this legislation is just about demonizing asylum seekers and refugees about trying to further stoke fear and division in our society and the government trying to escape accountability. Yeah, that's absolutely what's happening. I was just shocked at how open to interpretation a lot of these proposals were. And that's incredibly scary because that essentially empowers um, glorified cops, basically, to exercise their own personal judgment. And the people that they're tasked with, quote-unquote, looking after just have no way of advocating for themselves. No, they're rendered totally powerless should this law pass i mean refugees and asylum seekers in this country have already lost so much of their autonomy already and 
this is just such a malicious move. That's literally all it is. It's it's cruel and it's malicious and I just can't comprehend why it's even a thing. The othering of refugees and asylum seekers in this country is just so extreme that I have such early memories of it. In primary school, I remember being told, oh, well, these are economic refugees. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, stuff like that. It's just so deeply ingrained. Yeah. Even back home in PNG as well, you know, I have just been so stunned at how much Australian rhetoric concerning refugees has crossed into our country because, you know, there's just a lot of animosity towards them. And, yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll have to wait it out and see what happens when the proposed bill is debated but there is a petition organized by the asylum seeker resource center calling for the bill to be scrapped so we'll link that in the show notes for anyone interested but anyway let's move on yeah longel what's making you angry oh my god i think for the first time in our podcast's very short history, it's one person, and one person specifically. (laughs) Um, And that person is Disney child star, current adult actress, Bella Thorne. Uh. I am genuinely so angry But before we get into how angry I am, let's talk about why I'm angry. So, essentially what had happened was Bella Thorne had joined OnlyFans, which is a website that a lot of sex workers use. So it's not exclusively for sex workers, it's used by musicians and other creators, but essentially what it does is it charges people a monthly subscription fee to access any content the person they're subscribing to produces. So this is a system that is really compatible with sex workers because it doesn't bar them from being sexually explicit on camera. And obviously this isn't a platform just for sex workers. There are a lot of people like musicians that also rely on this service, other content creators, but a large number of sex workers do rely on this service because they aren't censored for sexually explicit content. So what had happened was Bella Thorne said, oh, I'm going to join OnlyFans. And people were excited because apparently you want to see your favorite celebrities naked. Not sure what the reasoning is, but go off. Essentially, what had happened was 
Bellathon said, oh, join my OnlyFans, and people did. And she said, okay, I'm selling nudes on my OnlyFans, Mm -hmm. so you're going to have to pay $200 to see my nudes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, 50,000 people had already subscribed to her OnlyFans, and these people also paid the $200 to see her nudes when they weren't actually nudes. What were they? She was just there chilling in her lingerie. Which she posts on her Instagram all the time, right? Yeah. So you'd feel ripped off yeah. if you had bought this for $200. And it's just so fucked because obviously you're not entitled to anyone's body or anything but by promising a specific you know reward for a set monetary price and not following through to the girls and the gays that's what we call a scam that is a scam she scammed him Bella Thorne scammed all these people and thousands of people obviously and rightfully asked for a refund and all of this financially ruined only fans i imagine that would have created a big issue because she didn't she brag about making like a million dollars from it on the first day or something i yeah, I think so. So, um, if they're like, "Oh crap, we suddenly have to pay back all of this money." What it like what did they do? Well, they had to refund everyone. Oh. You know. God. So, OnlyFans was forced to refund hundreds of thousands of dollars. A lot of money. Because one self-absorbed celebrity decided to get on a platform that finally made sex work accessible to people and scam her fans. And this makes me really angry. Not just the fact that she scammed people. Because if she just scammed people, I would have been like, oh, celebrities up to their shenanigans This is why I don't buy into celebrity culture. But no, because of this, OnlyFans has announced drastic changes to their website and to their policy. So now, because Bella Thorne charged $200 for quote-unquote nudes that weren't nudes in the end, OnlyFans has capped charges within subscriptions at $50. So... Sex workers can only charge a maximum of $50 for bonus content. So $50 is the ma- um, the charge for exclusive content. And you can't tip. So you can tip with an OnlyFans, your favorite creators. You can't tip more than $100. And they're also getting paid now monthly as opposed to weekly. Yeah, right? that's another one. So... 
They've also announced creators can only access the money they've made on a monthly basis because now there is a 30-day um, wait period to process their income. And this is so incredibly damaging to sex workers specifically because there are so many other platforms for content creators to, you know, make money similar to OnlyFans, you know. They can use Patreon. They can, if they're YouTubers, they can integrate membership into their YouTube platforms. But sex workers don't have those options. No, and sex workers in particular have lost so much work due to COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. That many rely on OnlyFans for their sole source of income. And a lot of sex workers have taken to the internet, have taken to social media to express how deeply upset they are, which is so valid. Like, a lot of these people have bills to pay and have expenses to take care of. And they've relied on having a weekly income to support their livelihoods. And now that they're not able to access their own hard-earned money for an entire month. Oh, this is so frustrating. This is so frustrating. Yeah, Bellathon, this is just the worst. Like, it's very classic for an ex-Disney star to be like, I'm going to prove I'm not innocent anymore. You know, I'm no child actor now. Yeah. And, you know, you do that. You, like, go and do all those things, but don't do it in a way that hurts sex workers. And she had the audacity to claim that she was bringing awareness to sex work and that she was trying to destigmatize sex work. I'm sorry, Miss Thorne. You did nothing. Nothing of the sort. Instead, you took actions that threatened the livelihoods of the people you are claiming to want to help. Yeah. And the thing that really like made my head explode about this was when she justified her decision claiming she was researching for a role she'd landed in a new movie. And then the director of that movie came out and was like, um, no, that is not true. I'm not working with Bella Thorne. This is a lie. So the whole premise of her being on OnlyFans that she told us was just straight lies. And the director that she claimed to be working with, Sean Baker, if you haven't heard of him, he makes like artsy films with yeah. nice lighting. He came out and was like, um, I did have a conversation with Bella Thorne after she joined the platform. And that basically revolved around asking her to consult with sex workers around her decision to not hurt the community and that's exactly what she ended up doing yeah so it's just like the plot thickened in a way that i didn't expect and also a way i don't understand why would she straight up lie (laughs) i have no idea i 
stopped trusting Bellathorn when she started dating a certain problematic YouTuber that I will not name on this podcast. I was just like, why? Why are you doing that? And now she goes and pulls a stunt like this. Bellathorn, why couldn't you have just aged out of your Disney Channel show the way your co-star Zendaya did. You both had the same show, and here Zendaya is, winning Emmy nominations, doing amazing Mm -hmm. things, Mm -hmm. while you're out here scamming people and ruining the lives of sex workers. Yeah, anyway, Bellathorn, if you're ever listening to this, why? Also, stop. Stop. Literally. (laughs) You're not a good person for doing this. You did actual harm. You're the worst. Just stop. Yeah, you're the actual worst. I Mm -hmm. hope Sean Baker drops you from his film. It's not even a real film. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Uh... just... Moving past this anger, Danny, what's bringing you joy this week? Just like my friends, you know. Sorry, I didn't think of like a very good one this week, but also it is a good one because I think this is a very good one because I'm included in it. (laughs) Of course. I don't know. I just, you know, it was my birthday this week and I was the kind of person once upon a time you know like two years ago that had like a hundred (laughs) friends you know I was one of those people um and it was really exhausting and it was kind of just really vapid and I don't think I had many real connections yeah and I've gotten to the point in my life now where I think the people I'm supposed to be friends with are the people who I am still friends with and those who I probably shouldn't have been hanging out with or never really had much of a vibe with, I don't really see anymore. And, you know, that's okay. I feel really good about it and I feel like I value the friends that I do have so much and we have like much deeper more rewarding relationships yeah I think if I could like go back to me a few years ago and be like stop hanging out with these trash people (laughs) (laughs) you will find real friends eventually stop pretending to be something you're not don't straighten your hair if I could do that Then I would. But also, I guess all of the, like, bad and, like, negative kind of relationships I had that were friendships, you know, they made me who I am. And I think I don't regret too much of past friendships. But, yeah, I guess just my pals that I have in my life now bring me a lot of joy. And, yeah, I'm really happy about it. I genuinely love that for you so much. I Thank you. I don't know. I'm just obsessed with my friends. Um like 
just a brief tangent. There was a guy on Tinder I was talking to. And in my bio, I say, I'm not looking for friends, but I'm happy to share mine. And he was just like, oh my God, I love your vibe, but I'm not sure if we should date. I think we should be friends though. And I was like, no, thank you. (laughs) 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 And, you know, that might have come across as mean in hindsight, but, you know, I'm... But you said it in the bio. Yeah, literally. What was this person expecting? (laughs) Literally. And... (laughs) Just like you, I feel like I'm just surrounded by the people I'm supposed to be surrounded with, you know. I love my friends so deeply, and I'm sorry, but if you're a stranger on Tinder who can't even read a bio, what do you have against my iconic friends? One of which is the co-host of the very podcast you're listening to. Hey. (laughs) But yeah, like, yeah, I love that for you so much. I love that you have great friends and great relationships now. Yeah, especially because I feel like we're living in our prime. You know, we're very young. We haven't been too jaded. You know, a whole life ahead of us. I mean... Sure. <laughs> Look, we're as unjaded as people our age can be. <laughs> this is true, especially in the midst of COVID-19. Yeah, um, and a worldwide ecological crisis. <sighs> but yeah, back to joy. Friends back are great. Joy. Um, yeah, highly recommend them. Highly recommend them. Yeah. Anyway, long old. What's bringing you joy? Okay, so just to clarify, the problematic behavior isn't bringing me joy, but the response to it is. I think I know where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of days ago, Adele posted a photo on her socials where she was wearing a carnival outfit including a bra with the Jamaican flag on it. And, choice. you know, her hair in Bantu knots. And it was just your classic case of cultural appropriation. And, you know, I'm not here to bang on Adele because this is about joy. And what has been giving me joy, what has been giving me life, for the past couple of days, is how much of a meme black people have made this. And I cannot tell you how much a reggae remix of Set Fire to the Rain has (laughs) made my tummy hurt from laughter. I have seen so many remixes of Adele songs in a reggae style and it may be one of my favorite memes of 2020 you know i amazing i'm not here saying she should be canceled i feel like she just made a mistake she's not out she's not out here profiting off of black culture or anything she just made a choice that wasn't a good one (laughs) or was it because all these memes are so good. So good. And I've been seeing tweets like, 
set fire upon the rain and I am dying. It's so funny. And I have a friend who posts so many TikToks of this specific meme on her story. And I have never watched anyone's story so religiously. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's what's bringing me joy. Um, Black content, black comedy content. We have to stand. I love that. And an Adele reggae remix. Oh my goodness. Uh, That's so good. Because I, I like Adele's music, you know. I'm popular opinion. Um, I've gotten a lot of hate for it. Really? I have. I have. Wow. I, I haven't listened to 25 at all, but yeah. What were you saying about... It's okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I enjoy it, but I feel like a reggae beat underneath would make it all the better you know yes oh my god i'm kind of bummed that a lot of them are only 15 seconds long because oh, release the whole thing literally like this this stuff slaps and i'm just like you're telling me i only get 15 seconds of it <laughs> but yeah adele thank you for this opportunity i'm sorry that the internet is clowning you but you maybe should have known better. But, you know, this is a great part of your legacy. And I saw a tweet that was like, her next album is going to be called Turdy Tree. And I died. I died. Mm. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Thank you, Adele. For all you give us yeah and thank you for listening um i hope you enjoyed this episode this was super fun i liked the notes we ended on super wholesome yeah um follow us on social media where Do we'll it. be potentially reposting some of these memes on our stories who knows potential but yeah, so <laughs> hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at H-A-Y-F-Pod. And <laughs> let us know how you're feeling. Yeah, we want to know what's making you anxious or angry or what's bringing you joy. Yeah. Bye! Bye! <laughs> how Are You Feeling is hosted and produced by us, Danny Stewart and Longall Burkina. Editing and sound design is by Danny Stewart and artwork by Indiana Johns. It's bit hello. <laughs> hello. Sorry. Um co-host Danny has cut on. out. <laughs> I'm gonna put my hotspot on. Oh my god, um, how embarrassing. So uh, how are you feeling? The NBN. The MBN. It's just bullshit. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> yeah, you're back. You're back. <laughs> so sorry. No, that's all um, good. What are we talking about? <laughs> Bella Thorne. The worst.